Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, Broadway Bike Lane. It was an idea approved by a previous council, but will a dedicated lane now face the chopping block from an ABC majority. Plus, isn't cash king? Is it legal for a store to refuse cash payments? Plus, when can we expect a decision on the Surrey Police Soap Opera? And we'll also meet two BC women who competed in a 15-day Moroccan rally across the Sahara Desert. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Let's focus on another mode of transportation, that's uh, bikes. A few minutes ago, Vancouver Council uh, began discussion on a controversial change to the Broadway redevelopment plan. If passed, the project will no longer include bike lanes along Broadway, which was um, a significant part of the original vision for the quarter that was approved by the uh, previous council. Now, last year, council voted to move forward with cycling and active transportation lanes as the key travel route, as the key travel route is upgraded uh, along Broadway. Uh, with the construction of the SkyTrain subway line. But a new report to council, city staff are recommending Broadway upgrades not include the lanes and instead be completed with the possibility of adding them in the future. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Gordon Price. He's a fellow at SFU Centre for Dialogue, former Vancouver City Councillor and former TransLink board member. Gordon, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Jess. Good to be here. Uh, your thoughts, first and foremost, uh, how important is this, this discussion that has just started right now at City Hall, and they hope to have a decision by 6 o'clock today? How important is it? You know, Jess, on this one, I have a very strongly felt ambivalence. <laughs> you know, I don't know how I would vote on this one. Hmm. Uh, but in the end, I'm not sure that it really does matter that much. Uh, it's certainly an important indicator. Uh, it's necessary to plan for the future on this one, given the changes on Broadway. But the fact that there are two lanes, 10th and 7th, and that there will be some room, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, in fact, I would drop the name bike lane. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's kind of obsolete. It's very 20th century. We're, we're at the, the point, it's kind of like trying to figure out how the phone is going to evolve back in 2010. <laughs> the small electric motor and battery is changing it all anyway. I mean, what is a bike? Is it a scooter? Is it a motorbike? There, there are things happening that we don't even have names for yet. But the, the big difference I focus on is the difference in speed. It's a bike will go, well, about 15K. If you put on a motor, man, you're, you're talking 30. And at that point, that's where the conflict is as much with other cyclists as it is with cars. And I don't think we quite know how to design for that yet. So in, in this case, as you say, there is a lane on 10th. And, and you're right, when I leave my office and I'm walking towards, you know, walk to, to my uh, parking spot for my vehicle, you see all these, uh, they're not bikes, but they're, you know, two-wheeled yeah. motorized contraptions, and they whiz it right by. And, and they're not going 15 kilometers, <laughs> a lot faster in some cases as well. And it's part of uh, downtown life, and I think it's fabulous. But but you're right, it isn't just a traditional bike lane. I'm actually was a, of the opinion, look, we got something on 10th already. Ready, it works. Just leave it as is. But I, my my opinion seems to be evolving, and to the point where I'm almost convinced that maybe we should have it. Um, but you're saying tenth is still still okay then in your mind? And, and uh, yeah, tenth and seventh they provide good through traffic. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to take a look at what the purpose is. And I think a lot of people, I won't speak for all, of course, is they're, they're aiming to get across the city. It's a cross-town route. On Broadway, you're going to want to get to a particular destination. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and for businesses and well, just, the, you know, the great mix of Broadway. It's, it's going to be a different need. 
I would also emphasize that, you know, we are talking as much about the sidewalks. We are talking about pedestrians and all the other people are going to be using that space for patios. And again, God knows what else will happen. And uh, another factor that I think of increasing importance, room for trees and lots of them. If you look at Richards in downtown South, five rows of trees adds beauty, good for the environment. Uh, it adds actually a lot of value. To the street and on Broadway, man, we could just do a fabulous job of greening up that street and making it look really terrific. But for that, you will need, I think, more sidewalk space. Not to mention, of course, all all of the uses that we can fill that space with. Mm-hmm. That'll leave room for that. Uh, we had a Bridget Anderson on this show uh, last week. She, of course, is the presidency of the Metro Vancouver Board of Trade. Uh, in, in what I would call a rather rare press release, they came out and started commenting on whether or not there should be a bike lane. She did not support a bike lane at all. Take a listen to her comments. The Broadway corridor is the second largest employment center in British Columbia. So it's an incredibly important area for businesses, but also for residents. Taking away space on the Broadway corridor doesn't make much sense. We need that avenue open for traffic, both for cars and commercial trucks, for public transit, for emergency vehicles. We also need space for more pedestrian space and more patio space. So it really needs to be uh, a common sense, balanced approach by council. Uh, now, Gordon, based on what uh, Ms. Anderson said there, uh, and based on what ABC councillors have said, looks like they, there would be no, there will be no bike lane. What do you say to some? The argument some are making is that it's very short-sighted. Inevitably, we're going to come back to this conversation and have some sort of lane for uh, you know um, um, for bikes, for for other uh, modes of transportation that will have to be built in. So let's do it today and now, rather than having to wait five, eight years later and spend more money. Then do it now. No, <laughs> I think this is a <laughs> this is a good. Uh, the engineers have made the point. We don't really know yet. There's going to be a lot of uh, uh, evolution of the technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have to wait and see just indeed what the demand is going to be, how many people will stick to 10th and 7th. And, and look, if you're you're in a car, uh, Jess, uh, you're not going to be wanting to have to battle your way down Broadway with a lot of other users who are competing for the same space. You'd like at least some indication of roughly where everyone should be, not to say they will all do it, mm-hmm. but if you could, uh, I'll go with common sense here. If you give people some common sense design direction, most will take it. If you don't, they will start fighting it out, and it won't be pretty. So it really is in everyone's interest to figure out what the best design for what we call a complete street is. And on, on Broadway, yeah, no, I don't think we quite know that yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gordon, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Hey, Jess, I think we're going to be talking about this again. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know it. You know it. It's one of those stories that never, never go away. Kind of like rain in Vancouver. Thanks so much, Gordon. Wow. <laughs> Till then, Chad. Well, within the last hour or so, we've learned that Donald Trump has been indicted by a Manhattan grand jury after a probe into hush money. Uh, that had allegedly been paid to adult movie actor Stormy Daniels. Uh, Mr. Trump becomes the first U.S. or first former U.S. president to face criminal charges, uh, even as he makes another run for the White House. Joining us now to talk a little bit about this breaking news story is Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. Uh, What does this mean? 
Well, it's a big question. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, we don't know. This is a situation that the United States uh, has never been in before. A former president, a sitting president, a, camp- a, a candidate for president has never been indicted. So the judicial process and the electoral process is navigating uncharted waters right now. Uh, ultimately, in the very, very near term, we know that this is going to result in some form of charge uh, laid against Donald Trump. It is still under seal. We don't know what uh, what exactly the grand jury voted on. Uh, and a little further out from the near term, we know that Donald Trump will have to be arraigned and he will have to face a judge on whatever the charge is. But again, this is the first hour of just the very first domino that has started to fall. Uh, are there any worries of um, uh, violence? Uh, because Mr. Trump in the past and certainly in the last few weeks has talked about um, you know, uh, not specifically violence, but certainly uh, he has reached out to his own supporters and talked about this potentially happening. Uh, there was concern uh, in regards to safety of, of officials, of uh, public buildings as well. What are you hearing? Sure, it's still a real concern. I mean, I spent all last week uh, in in Manhattan, and while there weren't any big protests that came out, in fact, they were they were quite small, and the counter protests were kind of equally as small. Uh, there were barricades that were put up around uh, the courthouse in Lower Manhattan. Those barricades were put out uh, in uh, in Washington D.C. around the U.S. Capitol, since taken down. But it's unclear what's going to happen moving forward. Donald Trump used his social media platform just you know under two weeks ago to say that if an indictment came down that quote unquote death and destruction would take over the streets of wherever you know wherever that was going to happen uh, and it did result in um, a heightened alert being put for police forces in and around uh, the country because we have seen what happens when Donald Trump puts the call out to his base uh, to to do something in response to something that he says is unfair and the words that we're hearing from his team within the last hour are words like witch hunt. Uh, and and this is the kind of, of phrasing that makes an impact with his base. So how they respond now is going to be paid very closely attention to by not only local police, but likely at the federal level as well uh, when it comes to uh, Homeland Security and the FBI. And uh, certainly based on what we've heard today, Mr. Trump is still wanting to represent the Republicans in the next pre- presidential election. That his, his campaign is still moving forward? It is moving forward. And, and look, he's he's always said that no matter what happens, he intends to remain in the race. And constitutionally, at least, nothing would prevent him from remaining the 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 a candidate or the potential nominee or the president himself, because the Constitution doesn't really deal with uh, a criminal background for somebody who is trying to be or acting as or in the capacity of the president of the United States. So he intends to carry through with this. How this impacts the campaign, you know, that's that's part of the uncharted waters that the country is in right now. It, it's unclear whether this is going to, you know, potentially give him, um, you know, that 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 look of a political martyr uh, and allow for the base to rally around him, or mm-hmm. if the, if it may take other candidates that are in the race and allow them to get some oxygen to say this is too much political baggage. This is again kind of a wait and see moment. Now, Mr. Trump was impeached, impeached twice by the. House of Representatives in 2019 over his conduct uh, regarding Ukraine in 2021 over the attack on the U.S. Capitol by his supporters. Now, he's acquitted by the Senate both times. In this case, can the Senate play any role in this? This is strictly uh, an indictment from the state. 
This is this is strictly a, a state matter. This is not uh, a political matter. And again, an, an indictment is a political matter. It doesn't really carry any legal ramifications. Um, but you know, we have to see what's going to move forward with this because there are some amendments within the Constitution. I don't remember which number it is. It's, it's higher up, though, in the twenties mm-hmm. that says uh, if somebody has, you know, potentially dealt with insurrection or has has kind of had a, a hand in that, it could prevent them from holding office. Now, Donald Trump is facing additional um, grand juries that are dealing with that matter, so that could be something that impacts his ability to move forward in that respect. But as of now, politics will stay out of this. This is a state-level investigation. And in fact, Jazz, there have been some of Trump's allies on the Hill in the House of Representatives looking to try and get Alvin Bragg, the district attorney, uh, to come and testify. And there are people saying that that crosses a line because this is a, a state-level investigation, not anything to do with federal politics. Well, American politics is never boring, and uh, we will be uh, uh, keeping a close eye on what transpires. And once again, thank you so much, Reggie. Thank you. Well, today the Vatican responded to indigenous demands and formally repudiated the doctrine of discovery, the theories backed by 15th century uh, papal decree that legitimized the colonial era seizure of Aboriginal lands and forms the basis of some property laws even today. Now, a statement from the Vatican said that the decrees did not adequately reflect the equal dignity and rights of Indigenous peoples. Uh, The statement from the Vatican, even the Vatican talking about this, uh, marks a historic recognition of the Vatican's own complicity in colonial era abuses committed by European powers. Uh, The news comes exactly one year after Pope Francis met at the Vatican with Indigenous leaders from Canada who raised the issue. Joining me now to talk a little bit about today's um, statement uh, from the Vatican is Breen Ouellette, who's a Vancouver-based lawyer. Breen, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And good to have you in studio, too. I know we've talked a lot on the phone, but never had a chance to meet face-to-face, so it's wonderful to have a conversation with you face-to-face, and it's an important one today. First of all, uh, what did this mean to you, and what do you think it means to the broader Aboriginal community in this country? I... To me, it shows that the the cracks are continuing to form. Um, you know, this is this is more of a moral victory than a legal victory. Getting the getting the acceptance uh, by the Catholic Church that the, the the papal doctrines that form the basis for virtually everything that's happened in Canada that that has been done to Indigenous people by the Canadian government mm-hmm. um, to have those repudiated. Uh, is um, it's in, it's an important moral victory. Um, as a as a legal victory, it would probably be more meaningful if uh, the United Kingdom revoked the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which is a document that came a couple hundred years later that based its claims over the territory of Canada essentially on the same basis that that the that the papal doctrines were were saying, which was that there were no people here because only Christians were considered people in those European monarchies. So when it comes to what you've just described, when the Europeans came, basically it meant they discovered the land, even though there were people already living here. Is, is that sort of what the, the, the doctrine of discovery uh, recognized? What, what the doctrine said was that, the you know in 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 essence the way it developed was that European monarchs had the 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 um, the right of of God to take lands from indigenous uh, nations and peoples as 
the sovereign lands of that European monarch. Um, and the fact that people were living there already uh, didn't matter because they were non-Christian. Um, and it, it, even at the time, it was considered uh, by, by some circles to be illegal and immoral and inhuman. And there were, um, uh, for instance, uh, one gentleman, Francisco de Vittoria, was a, a legal jurist within the Catholic Church who, a few decades after the papal bulls were issued, was saying, this is not legal. We can't just arbitrarily go in and take people's land. Whether or not they're, they're non-Christian, they are human beings and they are the sovereign rights holders to that territory. So in 2023... Uh, beyond uh, this uh, symbolic recognition, what would you like to see moving forward? And what I mean by that is something that would improve the lives of Aboriginal people in this country, uh, whether it be uh, uh, just, uh, I guess, holistically, morally, but also so they can build their lives moving forward, an economic base for themselves, all those kind of things that you I think we're all collectively trying to get there. What does this mean moving forward? Well, so what I mean when I said off the top that the cracks are, are growing, um, I, I say this with no, you know, with absolute um, seriousness. I think that Canada is verging on its South Africa moment. Um, not many people in this country realize yet that the Constitution of Canada enshrines apartheid in Section 9124 of the Constitution. And that's, that's the section of the Constitution that says Indians and lands reserved for the Indians are reserved for uh, – are, are under the jurisdiction of the federal government. Mm-hmm. And so what it does is it establishes a separate set of laws applicable only to a group of people on the base of their race or ethnicity. And – in concert with the previous and ongoing genocides in this country, uh, the one that is uh, you know, strongest in my heart is, is the apprehension of Indigenous children in a foster care that's still happening today. Um, those, those crimes of genocide and other crimes of humanity tie back in to the federal government claiming to have this apartheid power over Indigenous peoples. If um, if Canada were to face the International Criminal Court, uh, the, the Constitution would likely be found illegal at the international level, the same way that uh, Francisco de Vittoria would have found it illegal back in the 1500s. So how do we move forward? And I say this yesterday at 3 o'clock, I had Hill Salem on the show, the Squamish Nation Council chair, talking about, uh, first of all, the fight f- to get their land back and now develop it. Uh, whether it be on Sinak, and as they announced yesterday, 350 acres, they wish to develop two-thirds of it on the North Shore. They are building an economic base with their community. They're building capacity in their community in regards to having talented, educated people who who wish to work. They're educating their young. Um, At the same time, uh, they also have to work with non-First Nations communities as well, try to build uh, some sort of um, consensus on how they should move forward on their land, but at the same time working with other communities as well. When you talk about that crack forming and uh, comparing it to South, South Africa for that moment, um, some would say we're already there in regards to urban First Nations moving pretty quickly in some cases, yet many communities in the interior in the north perhaps not so. So in regards to the totality of this, these communities, how do you move forward after this recognition? Is it f- further uh, conversation? Is it about just getting the government out of the lands and having a say over your lives in, in, in the reserves? What is it? If I could have anything happen yeah. uh, tomorrow 
tomorrow, what I would have happen is that the federal government and the prov provincial governments agree that the apartheid enshrined in Section 9124 of the Constitution mm -hmm. should be rescinded and that uh, the sovereignty and the title of Indigenous nations should be recognized and that all governments in Canada should be working together with Indigenous nations as equal partners for the betterment of everyone living here. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a really difficult a hurdle for a lot of people, um, as I'm reminded consistently on social media, as an Indigenous person, uh, I, uh, pe non-Indigenous people, many believe that I owe Canada uh, something for the lifestyle that I enjoy, that I have been bettered as a result of uh, Canada occupying these territories. The other side of the coin is, I have relatives that are in foster care. They've been taken from our, our extended family. We don't have access to them. In one instance, a boy was adopted to a white family and nobody in my family has access to him whatsoever. We don't know where he is or how he's doing. And uh, it's because we're Indigenous people. That's the reason. Um, that should not be happening in this country today. Uh, just based on what you just said, are you still an optimist that we as a country can get there? Because, I mean, I, we can talk in legal terms, but what you've just said there, uh, I'm just speaking for myself, I would be incredibly angry uh, at the system that has done that, inflicted on that for generations, that here we are in 2023 talking about reconciliation, but you do not have access to your own family members, your, your extended family. Yeah, children. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I'm still an optimist, and the reason is that my third great-grandfather, uh, Jose Ouellette, faced off against the Canadian government at Batoche in 1885, and he took a bayonet in the stomach uh, on the final day, the final hours of the battle, so that his, uh, his kith and kin, the, the other Métis men on the battlefield, could retreat. And he died of that wound at 93 years of age. Um, you know, in his dying moments... Uh, he knew what he was fighting for. He knew he was fighting for his community, but I don't think he could have envisioned that one of his descendants would be a lawyer in Vancouver. I have an, an incredible amount of privilege, there's no doubt. Um, all I want and what I'm hopeful for is that we can continue to move forward in a good way and mm -hmm. end the remaining vestiges of colonization and genocide and apartheid in Canada. And... I, you know, South Africa did it. We can do it. There's no doubt we can do it. We just have to have the will of the people. And, and I'm seeing that. People in Canada who are not Indigenous are lining up behind Indigenous people to support us. Mm -hmm. That is true. It is a it is a, a very slow moving process, but one that we collectively as a country have to get through. Breen, as always, my pleasure in ch chatting with you. Look forward to having you on again. Yes, thank you. Well, British Columbia has expanded uh, legislation to crack down on organized crime assets through a tool called Unexplained Wealth Orders. Today at a news conference, uh, conference uh, Solicitor General Mike Farnworth said, if there is suspicion of unlawful activity, uh, those orders will require people to explain how they acquired their assets. Now, that alone uh, is newsworthy, of course. But what caught our attention today wasn't that announcement. It was when uh, Global BC's um, legislative bureau chief, Keith Baldry, 
asked about the findings from a Nova Scotia inquiry into the mass shooting and killing of 22 people, which occurred nearly uh, three years ago. Now, the report came out today and it was scathing in how the RCMP handled the situation. The report uh, took aim at the RCMP's uh, complete response to the crisis and uh, there was a failure uh, at almost every level. Uh, the report said there was a lack of preparation, a lack of communication, a lack of leadership. It was scathing. Now, uh, Mr. Baldry asked Mike Farnworth if the findings will play a role uh, in his decision on whether to keep the Surrey RCMP or move forward with the new Surrey Police Service. Now, keep in mind, no decision has been made yet, but listen to his response to Keith's question. That report is something that uh, we will be looking at very closely. Uh, And I would also say that every uh, community, including Surrey, uh, needs to be looking at the recommendations in that report. Uh, I've not yet received a report from within the ministry um, on on the the transition plan, Uh, but I can tell you uh, that uh, my officials will be looking very closely at the recommendations uh, in this report. Uh, joining us now is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chiefs. Keith, Keith, I got to ask you this: as I'm listening to 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 the Solicitor General speak here, uh, were you expecting that response? I kind of was. I got, sort of got the impression. Again, t- talking to farmers many times, talked about the Nova Scotia situation before, um, and about the RCMP and Surrey Police Services, and. Uh, yeah, I expected him. He was certainly not going to dismiss out of hand the Nova Scotia inquiry as influencing potentially his government's decision on what to do with the RCMP in Surrey. Uh, the longer answer to my second question was this has implications right across the country when it comes to the RCMP and policing in all communities. And so if you're an advocate for keeping the RCMP in Surrey, I don't think you like what you heard today. Because I think this is Farnworth emphasizing the negative downside of the RCMP. And it's interesting how many conversations I've had with ministers where the negative aspects of the RCMP, you know, the problems associated with it, whether it was Nova Scotia, this troubling case in, Man- in Prince George of two members charged with manslaughter and three charged with covering it up, obstruction of justice, um, the list is long. Farnworth has talked about he's concerned about the chronic vacancies that plague RCMP detachments, saying he's not going to take officers from other jurisdictions to give them to place them in Surrey. So every time this comes up, it seems to be the negatives about um, the RCMP rather than the positives. And I expected that to be on display today. It sure was. I mean, those were two answers that. Uh, Basically, I have to worry those who advocate keeping the RCMP in, in uh, Surrey. Uh, Mike Farnworth is a veteran politician. He has, um, you know, taken many a difficult question, uh, and for him to come out uh, and to to say that obviously he's going to look at the findings from this uh, report, which is the right thing, to, of course, to do. But even for a veteran politician like that to say that 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 the looking at it, looking at the broader issue, I mean, he is trying to send a signal. He may not say so, but indirectly, as you say, this is a signal to those uh, who are still waiting for that decision that uh, this is going to be a part of a broader, um, I guess, uh, conversation and a broader analysis within government before they come down with that decision. Yes, and again, the the message from Farmworth, as he sort of in subtle ways said before, this is not just a Surrey situation. And again, back to the point I just made, he's mentioned several times, we're not taking officers from other RCMP detachments to put them in Surrey to shore up vacant positions there. And that means he's flagged a concern about if we keep... Uh, uh, the RCMP in Surrey. You don't hear the same negatives being bandied about here in the corridors of the legislature 
when it comes to Surrey Police Services, largely because they're new. Uh, they don't have much of a presence. But the RCMP is the topic of conversation over here. As everyone gets ready to see what the decision is, again, the negatives surrounding the RCMP grow in number. They don't lessen. And today's report from Nova Scotia is extremely troubling because it does have implications for RCMP services right across the country. Uh, what I also found interesting was a press release uh, dated yesterday from the Federation of uh, Canadian municipalities, uh, and basically what they said was that the federal government has has indicated to the FCM, and, and this is a, a national organization that speaks on behalf of municipalities, the provincial version of that is the UBCM, but they indicated in the 2023 budget that um, the federal government will not be meeting the request to absorb the retroactive costs associated with the latest mm-hmm. RCMP collective bargaining agreement, which of course the, would mean the local municipalities would have to cover those costs. Well, and just and for the city of Vernon alone, I'm just you know with a population of forty four thousand, that's three point four million dollars they now have to absorb, and it's going to be many other communities. That's just I mean it just indicates, and I, and I don't want to be piling on in the RCMP. It just speaks to the significant structural challenges that that police force has nationally and here in British Columbia. Yeah, the federal government's been sending out some signals for some time. It's less and less interested in getting involved in the policing situation. Um, And you get the impression they'd love to hand the RCMP off to something else. I think it's fair fair to say the RCMP's glory days are well behind it. I don't see a a bright future for that force looking down the road. And maybe it starts with Nova Scotia and maybe it starts with Surrey. Uh, and because, again, I think you're going to see municipalities chafe at the notion of having to pay these these costs associated with an RCMP contract. And it may very well pave the way for a more regional approach to policing. It's harder to do that in Vernon, you know, some of these more remote rural communities that are kilometers away, a number of kilometers away from the next town, unlike an urban area where everyone lives fairly close together. So that's a different challenge out there. But yeah, that release from that organization today expressing disappointment that that money wasn't in that in that budget. And again, no one I think was expecting that. That wasn't flagged in pre-budget coverage about where there are going to be RCMP contract costs. And they're not covered. And that's got uh, municipalities upset. And again, it's a sign, I think, of where we're headed, not where we've been. Um, I guess even, and if they do go with SPS, and look, I don't know, ultimately it'd be a decision. Neither do I. Yeah, and, uh, but you know, when you read the tea leaves, it seems like they're looking in one direction. But let's just say they're able to, this is the, this would be, the, with the Surrey Municipal Force, really the, the, the big step towards a regional police force one day. And that'll be another government probably deciding that, and we're, we're very far away from that. But we, it seems to be this is the slow march towards a provincial police force, or at least a metro Vancouver force, which will eventually lead to a, a provincial police force. That's still many years away, but this seems like those baby steps in that right direction. Well, yeah, and baby steps is the correct term, although Surrey would be a significant step if we were to go down. That would be the, you know, the second biggest city in, in B.C., jettisoning its you know, centuries-old police force for a brand-new made-at-home one. And that does have implications for, for other, uh, particularly in the, in the urban areas of metro and suburban areas of Metro Vancouver. But again, back to Far North's comments today, I think uh, he's, he's indicating that what this, the lessons learned and recommendations contained in this Nova Scotia police inquiry, mass shooting inquiry, have implications for RCMP jurisdictions outside of Nova Scotia, and that includes Surrey. Well, thanks so much, Keith. This All is right. a fascinating conversation. Uh, we'll do it again.
Shortly after 3 o'clock, Vancouver Council began a discussion on the uh, controversial change to the Broadway redevelopment plan. Essentially, they were uh, discussing bike lanes. Now, last year, Council voted to move forward with cycling and active transportation lanes on Broadway as it was part of the uh, travel route and the upgrade to the uh, SkyTrain subway line. But a new report to City Council city, uh, city staff were recommending Broadway upgrades not include the bike lanes. Uh, I am told that the vote was uh, just completed a few minutes ago. Joining me now is Vancouver City Councillor Mike Klassen. Mike, thank you for joining us. Uh, good to be here, Jess. Uh, I know you've got a lot on your plate and more to do after this, I'm sure. Uh, just walk me through the, the vote. Uh, basically, you voted against uh, having the bike lanes on Broadway? So I, I think what we voted on today is good news for um, for people who want to use the corridor. Um, it is uh, a vote to uh, make it a more dynamic, uh, a, a much better street. I think people in New Broadway is not the not the area you necessarily want to hang out, but um, with the new plans, with its wider side rocks and more uh, tree canopy and um, uh, more sort of plaza spaces, it's going to be a much nicer sort of area for people to spend time and uh, recreate and go to patios and what have you. Yes, the active transportation lanes are currently not uh, part of this plan. Um, as we know, Vancouver has got a very strong, almost global reputation for the amount of work that we've done around active transportation. We've built some uh, really important um, uh, bike-only and, um, and mobility-only uh, uh, thoroughfares. But um, uh, staff came back to us and said, now it's not the time. There's just too many uncertainties around the future of this um, uh, thoroughfare while we get the um, the SkyTrain running, of course, we've got five brand new SkyTrain stations that are going to be opening on Broadway in the spring of 2026. So, like staff is sort of saying, we don't have budget for this now. Let's get the the street built, and then we can start looking about adapting later on. What do you say to the argument that now is the time to do it? That look, uh, when you when you revisit this thing in five or seven or ten years, it may be much more complicated, more expensive. Now is the time to make that decision to move forward. I know uh, there is a bike lane on Tenth, but the supporters of this have said, look, uh, do it now. It's a dynamic street. Uh, people will be using it for uh, cycling and many other modes of transportation. Uh, let's not uh, be afraid. Afraid. Uh, let's be very uh, proactive in this. What do you say to that argument? Well, we heard a lot of different arguments, and I think all of them um, make some sense. We're talking. There was the climate argument. We want to talk about uh, reductions in, in overall um, uh, share of, uh, of uh, you know carbon emission vehicles. Um, the staff told us that we were going to be seeing. Essentially, um, uh, with uh, taking out the two side lanes, we're going to be ha- and, and, and still maintaining um, an active bus route for both Oak Street and for Arbutus. Uh, we need to have that. This is also a route that um, is a part of the uh, larger transportation network. We know it's part of Highway 7. Um, it, it connects us to major um, areas of the city, including the Jericho Lands, which has big plans for it. Uh, UBC has big plans for it. So the the thing we wanted to make sure is that we weren't um, um, you know preventing uh, emergency vehicles, um, and shipping, and other types of um, uh, transportation to go through that corridor. And I think it gives us a chance to look at it a little bit uh, later on. And as you did point out, we have safe um, thoroughfares that uh, uh, parallel the route along Tenth Avenue 
and on 7th and 8th Avenue. Um, there's more work to be done in those to make them even safer. Um, but if you want to get through quickly um, as a cyclist or somebody on a scooter, those are really great uh, routes to use. And I want to confirm this. So if you had a, if you added those active lanes, uh, bike lanes, whatever you wish to call them, if you added those bike lanes, you would have gone from four lanes of traffic down to two. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, so right now we are going to be uh, – uh, the, the two-lane was one of the options. The other one uh, option was to uh, skinny down the sidewalks. The sidewalks, in some cases, might be even smaller than they are now. And I think that the general feeling uh, uh, is that we want to make our city as pedestrian-friendly as possible, make it um, a place where people want to – I mean, we've become – we're starting to be, build a really strong patio culture. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to make sure the streets are wide enough to – so people could be there and, and kind of – watch the world go by and, 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 um, and, and connect with the community. Um, and the actual uh, uh, sort of taking away of road space is an option that possibly we can look at later on. I mean, there's a, an expression out there we heard a lot called a road diet. Um, we could, um, and there were um, some very interesting um, science-based uh, arguments around going down to three lanes, having one alternate lane for uh, that would, uh, you know, that buses and, and emergency vehicles and others would rely upon. So I think we've got all these options uh, looking forward to it. We were putting an enormous amount of pressure on that uh, limited amount of space mm-hmm. uh, to try and make it as, as, um, as you know, embraced as possible by the community. Uh, Mike, I know you got a really busy day. Appreciate you stepping out of a council meeting to chat with us and update us on, on the vote. Thanks so much. You bet. Anytime, Jess. Recently, one of our listeners emailed me complaining about uh, an incident uh, while shopping. Now, the lis- listener uh, was paying for an item at Shoppers Drug Mart. Now, the item cost just over $11, not a lot of money. So when he went to pay for it, he was told by the Shoppers Drug Mart employee, sorry, no cash. It appears he somehow ended up in the no cash lineup. Now, so that got me thinking, isn't cash king? Isn't legal tender? Don't businesses have to? Accept it. Uh, I think we all know with COVID, many businesses uh, went cashless and asked customers to use debit or credit or app payments as a, a precautionary measure. But still, can a store refuse to take cash? I decided to call the lawyer John Green, who it turns out was on vacation in Paris. But uh, we gave him a call anyway, and he was kind enough to actually talk to us uh, about uh, the um, the issue of whether or not uh, a business uh, has to accept cash. I talked to him about three hours ago. Take a listen. Can a business uh, turn down a cash payment from a customer? Uh, it sure can, yeah. I thought it was legal tender that you they had to accept it. Nope, they don't. It's uh, it's really civil contract law. So it's uh, if a person, if you get two parties, so say someone comes to my law firm and maybe it's a little bit different because I have a law society behind me, but uh, say they come to my law firm and the law society is not involved, uh, they can offer to pay for my legal or pay for services and anything that they want to offer and I can accept it. Uh, if you know if they want to trade me their car, I can accept that. So, uh, it, it Canadian money is out there. It, it makes it's designed to facilitate transactions, to make things easier. But um, when you go back, so we looked at it, some decisions back from like the 20s and 10s, and uh, it was an issue sometimes. That, you know whether businesses had to take money from the United States or when we changed from um, uh, gold became less of a, a trade of item. Uh, these kind of questions arose in the context of contracts, but uh, 
as it stands now, if, if someone shows up in your store and they want to give you $10 Canadian, you can say, no, I want $10 American, then, you know, you guys aren't going to see eye to eye on things and the person's going to walk out of your store. You're not going to get a sale, but that's about all that can happen. So as long as, as both parties agree on the form of payment, whether that be digital or currency, uh, that's what matters as long as those two parties come to a, an agreement as to what that payment would be. Right. And it's it, some, in some instances it can be, it can be different. Like if it's a payment for, for legal services and sometimes the law society will have things around that. Uh, even though I think some of that uh, remains to be seen, how that's going to be regulated when it's stuff like Bitcoin. But um, yeah, businesses transact in, in different currencies all the time uh, within and outside of Canada. It's just the contract itself has to specify what what what's being traded so whether it's american dollars or uh, euros or canadian dollars um for seniors those perhaps low income that still rely on cash uh, is there any civil liberties uh, civil liberty questions there because perhaps you're not comfortable with technology and you do wish to purchase let's say groceries or uh, you know just basic necessities but you want to pay in cash and you're turned away is there at least a civil liberties question there Nope, not there either. Because the when you when you look at uh, like sometimes it, it, these questions get, get raised, and people uh, that never went to law school will raise things like the charter. But the charter only applies when it's a government uh, action relating to services provided to Canadians. So if if it's but if it's services provided by a private company, then there's no the charter doesn't apply, and typically provincial legislation won't apply either unless it's relating to a human rights question. So it, it's really what it comes down to is if it's your corner store and you're a senior and they're telling you they want to just take digital payments and you have to come up with a digital payment um, or take your business elsewhere. John, thanks for your time. Yeah, you bet, Jess. That was uh, lawyer John Green who spoke to us a few hours ago on the issue of whether or not businesses have to accept cash transactions. Joining me now is Talia Miller, uh, who has and does work at a retail outlet uh, here downtown. And Talia, confirm for me, uh, you're completely digital? You are completely digital. So when someone comes up to pay, uh, like, like how do you do it? Is it uh, is it uh, just a, a touch touch screen? Yeah, it's just like the regular um, debit and credit machines that we have. So a lot of people they might start grabbing their cash, and I unfortunately have to go. I'm so sorry. It's we're just like card only. What kind of reaction do you get from people? A lot of rolling of the eyes, a lot of grunts and groans. But some people are like, oh, I'm so sorry. Because we do have signs throughout the store that say that we are like debit or credit only, no cash on site. Do people get angry? Some people do. Some people walk out of the store. Some people throw a huff and a puff. One lady um, told me that she's like, this is legal tender. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I don't have, even if I could accept the cash, I have no cash on site to give you change. Yeah. And that's a decision, obviously, your employer has made, the business has made, you're yes. an employee uh, there. It wasn't my personal decision. No, it wasn't. <laughs> but, but like most employees, you have to deal with the wrath of customers. Absolutely. And it, it can be a lot sometimes, especially during like holiday season, for example. That was a really tricky season to get through when we, we only had, um, we are only our card. Like, have they gotten like visibly angry with you? Uh, sometimes nothing where I've ever been super concerned. It's more no. just a huff and a puff, right? And then they're on their way to go somewhere else. Out of all your customers, what percentage of, of, of them actually want to pay by cash? I'd actually say it's about 
like one in five, I, I find. So about 20%. Yeah, about 20%. Well, I was looking at a survey today and they were saying uh, that by 2030, uh, this is one of those credit processing companies, they estimated by 2030, they think about 10% of consumers will still want to pay by cash by 2030. Mm. Most of us will have have gone digital. I st- I, I use my uh, my t- my Apple Touch now. Oh, do the, you? Which is which is wonderful, and and I do use it, but I don't use it very often. I do use my credit cards. Mm-hmm. I don't use debit. I always figure if somehow they got access to your uh, account, they may have access to your bank account. But with a credit card, at least you have one layer of protection, which mm. is still the requirement of the credit card company to keep that credit card safe. So rather than using your debit, which gives them access to just your account. So that's kind of the safety requirements that I, I use. So. Better be safe than sorry, well, right? It is true. You know, I, I with my son, um, we just got him his debit card. He's 14. Oh, that's exciting. We, we would, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd get money occasionally, go buy lunch and stuff like that at school. But more and more kids his age, they don't carry cash. It's all debit, right? And it's up to the parents now to put some money in the account just uh, as much as they need, that sort of thing. And I think that's just the way way things are going but i find it interesting that you still get pushback as a as a someone working there from people and say how dare you not take this absolutely and i can't get from like the consumer perspective it can be frustrating i just went to a bar not too long ago in gastown and i couldn't pay with debit it was credit or cash only but not debit? Not debit. Oh, that's odd. Isn't that a little odd? And I can remember when I worked at a cafe back in my hometown, London, yeah. that we were only, um, you couldn't pay with credit. You could. It was only debit and cash. So I think we just all need to be prepared for whatever situation. Have all three on you. Have your credit, have your debit, and have like $20 on cash. There's a wonderful sandwich shop in Tawasson that uh, I've gone to occasionally, and they don't take any credit or debit. It's strictly cash. Really? <laughs> Exactly. It's old fashioned, uh, but they make great sandwiches, and it's a it's a it's a great place to go to. But but it's it's interesting the transition that society is slowly making in regards to cashless and other places around the world, in in, in developing nations, they're actually leapfrogging over us in regards to how you can pay. And we look at China and some of those places. Uh, it's a complete. I mean, you're literally just you know it's you just pick up the item right there, use your phone, you're out in tap and, out. and go. Yeah, it is. It is quite uh, quite interesting. Uh, in regards to how, how that works, that's for sure. Well, Talia, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jess. Well, the Rally des Gazelles is a race which is held in the deserts of southern Morocco. Participants travel 2,500 kilometers through dried-out riverbeds, stony plains, and the sandy dunes of the western Sahara Desert. Jessa Arcuri is a vice principal from Penticton, and Mira Van Otterloo is a Nanaimo helicopter pilot. Together, they formed the team Northern Rally Cats. They both recently uh, participated in this unique race in, um, in North Africa, and they both join us now. Thanks for speaking to us today, Jessa and Mira. Thank you. <laughs> it's uh, I, when I heard about this story, I just found it so incredibly fascinating, and the visuals were amazing. Mira, let me start with you first and foremost. Uh, this was, a, to my understanding, the first time for both of you to participate in this. How did you two decide to get involved? How did you meet? Well, Justin and I have known each other for 26 years. Uh, we've been we went to university together, and so you know our friendship has lasted the the, the test of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I I found this this race when I was working in the Middle East and I saw it in a magazine and it's never really broadcasted out in the West at all because it is a French based race. And so because of it, I saw it in this magazine and I was just hooked on it. And I phoned Jessa right away and said, Hey, let's go on an adventure. (laughs) 
and, and just say your reaction? <laughs> My reaction, first of all, was, I can't do that. Um, but being a teacher and uh, always encouraging kids to, you know, do everything that they can do uh, to open the world to all of their adventures, I find myself being a little bit hypocritical and I uh, wanted to make sure that I was following my own advice. And so I quickly phoned Myra back and said, yes, I can do that. <laughs> so uh, walk me through uh, how you prepare, how you train. Uh, Jessa, why don't you explain, like how, once you've decided you're going forward with this, moving forward with this, how did you, how do you and Myra then get to the second point of this, which is deciding to go? How do you prepare for something like that? Well, um, being that I've never done a navigational course or anything like that, there was a lot of learning um, just to do with the basics around navigational uh, information and um, skills that you don't use every day. It's not every day that I use a compass and a map. Uh, And being that Myra and myself had to work together as a team, the difficulty around training became... um, that she works overseas quite often, and I live and work here in Penticton. So we had to do a lot of our training uh, on Facebook or over the phone. And we really, I think there's other things that we've done in the past together that also contributed to some of the skills that were needed, just things like not giving up and really digging deep and uh, and problem solving. So, uh, But we did do a navigational course. We each uh, had to do that before we went and uh, Myra's got some really great driving skills that she's been able to practice along the way. Myra, how does the race work? It's not like it's one race. It has different legs, doesn't it? Yes, every day is, uh, it can go up to about 10 legs per day, Hmm. and the race goes for nine days, and um, you move through the desert over those nine days, um, restationing every couple of nights in a different bivouac where we set up tents and, uh, and camp. And the organization has facilities all set up at these different bivouacs. And so each day you start out and you go through the different legs and then you end at the bivouac. Uh, what was the environment like uh, from the weather to the train? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just so you can handle that one. Yeah. Um, Well, you know, when you think that you're going to do a rally race in Africa, you have a bit of, uh, you you know, an understanding of what the train might be like. And of course, you know that you're going to be uh, driving through dunes. So you know that there's going to be a lot of sand. There's going to be a variation in the temperature because it is a desert. So at night, it cools down quite significantly. And then in the daytime, it's quite hot. Um, so you have to prepare for that. But I think what I found very interesting is every single leg was its own story. It was very unique because one leg, and when I'm talking about a leg, one checkpoint to the next checkpoint, you could be in these huge sand dunes, which were very difficult to overcome just because driving on sand, especially in the heat of the day, um, a vehicle isn't meant to, to drive in sand. There's no traction and, and there were skills that were needed. But then we also came across um, big rocky cliffs. Uh, and then the other thing that we came across was camel grass. That's probably one of our least favorite mm-hmm. things to go across just because it's so difficult. It's ingrained. It's been living for so long in the sand that's also around the camel grass. And it's very tough. And when you get stuck in this camel grass, it's really difficult to get uh, get yourself out. So the the train varied from cliffs and rocks to sand 
to this camel grass um, and every leg was different, which was something I didn't really anticipate. Uh, Myra, how, uh, how competitive is the race with, with uh, I mean, you must have participants from around the world competing. How competitive is it? it, it it's competitive as, as much as you want it to be. Hmm. Um, there are over 200 teams uh, competing at, and, and we have some professional drivers who are in there who are out to win. Um, we've had competitors who have done it 15 times. Um, Justin and I were, were in the novice section because this was our first time. And, and we looked at it that we wanted to make it to the end of the race without being disqualified or unranked. We wanted to make sure that both of us were safe and that, uh, that our truck would finish the race at the end of it. But eh, there is some competitiveness that I uh, definitely enjoy. And, and so, we kept that in the back of our mind uh, throughout the day. Uh, I always find um, uh, when you're in, I mean, I've been to North Africa before, Egypt and Libya and Tunisia, uh, and you, you know, you've got temperature, high temperatures there, you've got different environments, different terrain, as, as you both have described. Um, and just let me ask you this. Did you always get along during this race? And I know you've known each other for a very long time and you care for each other, but, but you, you can also test each other's nerves in that you're together all the time and these are very unique and challenging sort of environment that you're in and, and, and all that. Were you able to get along through all of that? <laughs> yes, that's actually, I think, the most common question I've been asked and I'm sure Myra's had it quite frequently as well because you are put to the test. There's times where... You're near tears, if not tears, and there's times of absolute joy and triumph. Um, so it's a bit of an emotional roller coaster. And I think the fact that we know each other so well and what we needed at that time, um, even if it was just giving the person some space, believe it or not, we didn't have one argument, but we also talked about a few key aspects before we, we went off on the race, and that was if we disagreed on something, what was that going to look like? We made sure that if we were double or sorry, that we double checked all of our work because it's a lot of responsibility if you're heading in the wrong direction and that's because of a mistake that you make, you kind of own that and you, there's some guilt that could um, be had with that. And so we made sure that we supported each other and that our decisions were together and it wasn't just one person's decision mm-hmm. and there wasn't any blame. Um, we laughed a lot, and I think that was probably our key to success because there were some teams that they really struggled with working together as a team during those tough conditions. Um, you know, some of the, the arguments that led to some problems that they weren't able to overcome. But we added humor, and I think that is probably one of the keys to our friendship and our relationship and always has been. And I think at the end of the day, it is a race and that we had to know that we were supporting each other along the way and just having fun. I mean, that's the other thing is we were out there to have fun as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, This uh, race is unique, uh, Myra, in the sense, I think it was the 32nd edition, but it's it's, uh, women only compete in this race. Um, Were there competitors, other competitors from Canada as well? Yes, in total, there was eight teams from Canada. Um, we were the first in uh, first ever BC team. The rest uh, came from Quebec, and they were made up of friends, mother and daughters. Um, and then throughout, uh, there was others that actually worked together, too. They were put together because of their companies. 
Um, so, yeah, there was eight, eight amazing Canadian teams. Uh, a question to either of you, uh, but do you both plan to go back again next year? <laughs> <laughs> I, okay, so next year is a big stretch for sure. Um, How come? If we were, if we were fully um, sponsored, I would definitely consider it again. Mm-hmm. Jessa may have a different opinion. <laughs> well, I think when you're going through it, and especially when you're hot, you're tired, um, and you're just physically and emotionally exhausted, you're like, I am never doing this again. Although I would do another rally race, but now that you've had time to digest it, you know, you never know. I don't think you can ever say, no, I'll never do that again. Um, but the world is a big place to see. Um, I, I loved the challenge of the navigational race and course um so i would like to continue doing something along those lines but you never know you never know what comes (laughs) (laughs) Uh, absolutely now if people wanted to just learn more about you do you have a facebook page or a web page that could go to yes we have a a facebook page it's called the true north rally cats um and or you can look up uh my name too it's associated to my facebook page that is excellent myra uh jessa thank you so much for your time really enjoyed our conversation and congratulations on your accomplishment it was a trip of a lifetime that's for sure (laughs) thank you very much We are speaking to Vancouver City Councilor Mike Klassen. He is uh, a member of ABC. Uh, the majority uh, voted against uh, including bike lanes along Broadway. Uh, in a report to City Council, city staff recommended Broadway upgrades not include the lanes, uh, but there have been many uh, folks on council and uh, proponents for uh, the bike lanes on Broadway saying it's an opportunity to make the right decision now rather than to wait years later. Joining me now to talk about the issue is Chris. Boyle. She's a Vancouver councillor with One City. Christine, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Uh, your thoughts first and foremost on this decision that probably occurred about just over an hour ago, the vote uh, to not move forward with bike lanes on Broadway. I think it's a massive missed opportunity. Uh, now is the time to do this because now is when we're already spending money resurfacing the road. Um, the The traffic volumes on Broadway have been reduced because of the subway construction. So now is when it uh, makes the most sense financially. It makes the most sense in terms of logistics and minimizing disruptions. And we see in study after study that active transportation lanes are good for business. And the businesses on Broadway have been struggling. We should be doing everything we can to support them and build a vibrant public realm on Broadway that brings more people into those businesses, brings more people together. Um, Instead, uh, the ABC majority punted the decision to some unknown date down the road when it will be more expensive and it will be more disruptive. Uh, And in the meantime, Broadway will be less safe for everyone. So a huge missed opportunity that, uh, that I'm incredibly frustrated about and that I think we will come to regret. Uh, the core argument is, look, we have a lane on 10th Avenue already. What do you say to that? You know, people uh, already walk and roll on Broadway because that's where they're going to access goods and services. And um, safe active transportation lanes are good for all road users. You know, everybody who is scooting or biking is somebody who's not in a car adding to congestion. So, 
even for drivers, it's good to be building the type of infrastructure that gets more other people out of cars. And uh, look, uh, I bike a lot around the city. I, I drive as well. I walk as well when I'm driving. It makes me nervous to have bikes and scooters mixed in with me. But because of this decision by ABC, there will be no safe place for them to be. In fact, there's no legal place for scooters to be on Broadway because they're not allowed to use the road on major road networks. They're not allowed to use the sidewalk. We know they will be there anyway, delivery people and and commuters and local residents. And it means they'll either be on the sidewalk, which is less safe for pedestrians, or in the road, which is less safe for all of us. So a a really short-sighted decision. Uh, Just to confirm for our listeners, if, let's say, the council had gone forward with bike lanes, would we have had taken out, would we have taken out two lanes for traffic? So instead of four lanes, uh, we would be down to two for for cars and trucks? The proposal uh, that I moved um, and, and again, the ABC majority shutdown was uh, two lanes of traffic in each direction and then active transportation lanes on the outside uh, on either side of the road and then sidewalks um, and physical space. So again, you know, the the um, recommendation from staff suggested patios. Uh, I love these outdoor patios we're seeing more of, but anyone who's sat at one can tell you it is not particularly relaxing to be a foot from trucks and speeding cars. Having active transportation there creates a bit more of a spatial distance between those big vehicles and and people gathering and walking. So something has to give. Just just to, in regards to your your proposal, you would just to have uh, more a narrower sidewalks uh, from the one ABC has gone with, and you would still have patios, but the, the pedestrian sidewalks would be a little narrower. Something has to give in regards to space here, right? Yeah. The, so they they would have been about the width that they are right now in the station blocks and in many areas, and then where there's a a bit more width in the road. Uh, we could have made them a bit wider. And then we also, as redevelopment happens, can be um, creating larger setbacks so that we're building patios on the building side, which is easier for business and it's much nicer for customers and uh, and residents to be sitting and gathering away from the street. Everybody on Broadway now knows it's a terrible street to walk on um, because you're so close to traffic all of the time. So, uh that active transportation lane would have created a lot more space for everyone to gather and to move. Uh, and so now moving forward, there obviously is an ABC majority on council. Uh, this decision is made. Uh, you don't expect it to be revisited until, uh, you know, the next election or post next election, whatever the council makeup may be. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, um, it, it is pushed to an unknown date down the road when, like I said, Um, If we decided to add active transportation lanes, it will cost more and it will be more disruptive. Um, And I'll add, you know, part of the disappointment is we heard from so many incredible and articulate speakers in support of this yesterday. Um, And ABC made a number of uh, promises and nice statements about their support for uh, safe active transportation, their support for climate action and we just aren't seeing it in votes, um, and all of those nice words don't mean anything for health and safety of residents if they're not actually landing in important decisions like this one today. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christine, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to chatting with you soon. Happy to anytime. Thanks. All right.
for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.